Stephen Kotkin is a world-class historian and perhaps the foremost expert on the history of the Soviet Union and Russia alive today. So that's what we spoke about, Joseph Stalin, Russian history, the way it's viewed in the West, and of course, Vladimir Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. Stephen, who taught you history? And when do you um, remember thinking that you'd like to be an historian? Yes. Well, that question is slightly involved because I went to university in the sciences, uh, but I was unable to endure the sight of blood in the medical school. And my medical career ended uh, with uh, very high grades, but uh, in my own vomit on the floor of the operating room in the University of Rochester Hospital as a sophomore. Is that literally true? Yes, it is. Wow. Uh, I was in um, organic chemistry, did really well, and was admitted to a molecular biology class, which had a fieldwork component at the hospital. And then at the end of my sophomore year, I was supposed to be admitted into medical school in a special program. University of Rochester, where I went for my undergraduate degree, had uh, an admission to medical school early. But um, the... Uh, operation, which was a right carotid artery scrape, because we didn't have Lipitor yet. And so to remove the plaque from the arteries, you actually had to open up the jugular and clean it out. And I had never seen anything like that before, and I've never seen anything like that since, and I didn't make it to the restroom. And my medical career ended, and I majored in British poetry where there's not that much blood. Um, but you wound up writing the biography of the man of blood, uh, Joseph Stalin. Well, it, uh, majoring in British poetry, I had this meeting with my um, advisor in the English department who said to me, you need an allied field in English because English is eight courses in English and four in an allied field. And I thought for a moment and I said, well, I have four semesters of mathematics and it was the kind of mathematics that no longer had numbers in it. And he looked at me and frowned and said, no, history. So he put me in four history courses the next semester in order for me to graduate with the BA in English. And I had Perez Zagarin for Tudor Stewart England. I had Christopher Lash for the history of America. And I had Eugene Genovese for the rise of capitalism and a fourth one that was less memorable. And I ended up major, double majoring in history and going to graduate school for history rather than English, but not in Russian history. When did that come into your life? Uh, that was my third year of the PhD program at Berkeley. When I was kind of floundering for an advisor, I started in French history. Everyone had a goatee and drank a lot of coffee. I've never had a <laughs> cup of coffee in my life. Neither have I, actually, funny And enough. I don't have facial hair. And I'm also not uh, favorably disposed towards leftist revolution, so I didn't fit. As a result of which, I abandoned French history for Habsburg history. But the advisor for Habsburg history, after I had learned Czech in order to impress him, told me he doesn't uh, take... PhD students. And so that was a bit of a dilemma. And uh, it, the short answer is Martin Malia, the great historian of uh, 
intellectual history, was at Berkeley, and I gravitated towards him and, uh, and started learning the Russian language. And then Michel Foucault also had an influence on me, the French uh, philosopher who told me it would be interesting to apply his ideas to the study of Stalinism. So I ended up crazily beginning to learn Russian third year of the PhD program instead of taking my exams, which I put off, and I had a crash course in Russian. And four years later, I was an assistant professor of Russian history at Princeton University. And Martin um, Malia, who you mentioned, argued in his book, The Soviet Tragedy in 1994, that because of the Soviet system's need for political and economic totalitarian control, it couldn't tap the full reservoir of human potential, regardless of the propaganda and ideology claiming that it could. How do you feel that that theory has stood up in the past quarter century? I think we've come to understand that totalitarianism, not in the straw man version, but in the sophisticated version, is a very powerful theory. And it's also a very powerful analytical concept in our response to such regimes. So I think Melia won that debate. Uh, mostly what you see is a Friedrich Brzezinski simplistic straw man version of totalitarianism, which you can then smell the straw burning on the page as they are getting ready to undo that theory. They portray it as simplistic and idiotic, which it was, unfortunately, in, the, in their version. And then they think they're, they're done with it. Uh, but Malia's version, uh, Jan Gross's version especially, which came a little bit later, was absolutely spectacular. And that's the version that I believe I helped advance and adhere to to this day. Tell us about Paul Gregory's Soviet Archives workshop here at Hoover. What, what did the opening of the Russian archives after the fall of communism tell us about Stalin that we didn't know uh, already? So Robert Conquest got most of this right. He was here at the Hoover Institution for decades, as Great you man. know. Great man. Uh, he wrote the most important books, really, in the, already in the 60s. He be, later became an advisor to Prime Minister Thatcher, as you know. He wrote poetry. Uh, Conquest got the system more or less right. Uh, it's not like we got into the archives and we discovered, oh my word, it turns out it's a constitutional rule of law order. <laughs> it turns out there's separation of powers and, and, and freedom and civil liberties and protection of private property. We got it all wrong. We discovered it was the tyranny that uh, Conquest and a, a few others like my advisor Martin Malia had written about before the opening of the Soviet archives, because here we had the anti-communist Hoover archives uh, put together by the emigration, which are just spectacular and still valuable to this day, even after the opening of the Soviet archives. I guess I would say some of the main things we learned have to do with um, the belief in communist ideals that was very pervasive and we did not take seriously enough, and that includes the elite and includes Stalin personally, the communists turned out to be communists, just like the Nazis were Nazis, just like the communist regime in China today means what it says. We sometimes have a tendency to tone down, wish away, deeply held ideological beliefs that make us uncomfortable, that we don't hold ourselves. So that was the main thing. The other thing is how deep the moral squalor was at the same time. 
So you have these convictions, deeply held convictions on one side, and then you have all of these means to enact those conditions, convictions that are more squalor than squalor, honestly. And, and um, you learn it and you see it, and, and still it makes a very profound impression on you. And Give us an example of what you mean. Well, they would go to a meeting and talk about social justice and enacting social justice and ending slavery and wage slavery, as they called it, meaning just the ability to hire people, destroying bourgeois parliaments, which, of course, mean representatives of the people. And they would go on in this vein. And then they'd have a follow-up discussion about murdering this person and murdering that person without due process in the name of these very ideals. And so you see them in their moral universe made up of both the convictions and the moral squalor simultaneously. And it, it, it's, it's not a show. It's not something they're acting. They actually are very ready, willing, and eager to put in practice the horrors that conquest and others document and that we know even more about in the name of those very ideals. In 1995, you wrote Magnetic Mountain, Stalinism as a Civilization, which exposed the realities of everyday life in the Soviet city of Magnitogorsk in the 1930s. Um, was the life of ordinary people there as dreadful as one might imagine it to have been? It was, but they didn't all think that. Paradox of the 1930s, or the rise of the Stalinist system, was that the deprivation was very severe, the repression was extreme, and yet people, not all, but many, in fact probably a majority, felt that they were building a new world, a new world of peace, justice, abundance, despite the obvious deprivation, despite the arbitrary in unjust repression around them, they were willing to suspend, as it were, the disbelief in the reality that they were seeing in order to believe in or hope for this radiant future that they were supposedly building. Remember, they were young. The Soviet Union was the youngest country in the world at the time, as far as major economies go. It had a huge proportion of its population under the age of 25, which is another reason that confronting the Nazi land army proved to be a lot easier for the Soviets than people understood. But these young people, instead of having mundane lives, instead of waiting to climb the ladder forever in career terms, they were building this new world. And so you screw in a, a bolt or a rivet. And it's not just a bolt or a rivet, but it's a strike against the international bourgeoisie. And so this mundane activity so suddenly becomes world historical. And of course, you're bathed completely in all of the propaganda about who you are and what you're doing and, and building this new world. And despite everything they saw going on around them, which could have led to doubts, many of them believed all through the end of their life. Lev Kopolev is the best example. Re uh, your listeners would enjoy his Education of a True Believer which is probably the single best book to understand the phenomenon of the rise of Stalinism that I described in Magnetic Mountain. G give us that surname again while I note it down. Lev Kopolev, 
who was a, a Germanist and forced into emigration, like Solzhenitsyn. Uh, Solzhenitsyn, of course, came here to Hoover and then settled in Vermont in the United States. Kopolev settled in Germany. He's less well known to the Anglo-American uh, sphere. But Kopolev's education of a true believer charts this youthful acceptance, desire to believe, and participation in mass crimes. And then there's a regret later on in his life while he's in emigration, writing his memoirs, but truthfully writing about the fact that he did believe in this and did participate in it. In September 1931, when Stalin discovered that his then 73-year-old history teacher from seminary was in prison in Tiflis, he ordered Beria to release him. Did Stalin's sense of Russian and Georgian history come from his reading in the Tiflis seminary before he discovered Marxism-Leninism? Uh, he discovered Marxism-Leninism, of course, at the seminary. So I would argue for simultaneity uh, right. in his development. The seminary is clearly enormously influential on him. It, uh, he's not allowed to go to university, can't attend university. There are restrictions on people from the provinces who can attend university and, and other restrictions. He does make it to the seminary. He's an excellent student. He has some good teachers. He reads a lot of books, including, eventually, underground literature or forbidden literature that circulates secretly among the students. He doesn't quite finish the seminary. He misses the final exams of his last year, so he actually didn't graduate. And, of course, he didn't become a priest, monk, as his mother lamented later on. Um, but nonetheless, uh, what's interesting about this is he began a process of continual self-improvement, where he got some formal education, uh, not a small amount for someone in his time period in that region, uh, quite a lot of education relative to the rest of the population, but also becoming an autodidact and teaching himself and having a, acquiring a lifelong passion for books. You point out that both Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great had far tougher earlier years than Stalin. Which czars did Stalin admire uh, and why? Stalin was about power. And so the more power you accumulated, the more power you exercised, especially on behalf of reasons of state and the advance of Russian imperial power, the more he admired you. And so if you had pangs of conscience, if you worried about arresting let alone assassinating, that is, murdering people, summarily executing them, he had less respect for you. So the wafflers, those who hesitated, those who potentially set Russia back, bothered him, but he loved the czars who were powerful and showed their teeth. And so, of course, Ivan the Terrible, uh, he had a fascination with Ivan all the way through the end of his life. Peter the Great, as you mentioned, uh, Alexander, of course, Alexander I got to Paris, as Stalin pointed out when they congratulated him when he <laughs> alighted in Berlin in 1945. And, and as well, though, we should remember that there were monarchs or shahs of uh, the Persian Empire, of medieval Georgia, 
and he was very familiar with that history as well, and he admired uh, many of those figures who would be less well-known to your listeners. Did he um, admire Catherine the Great for the extension of the empire under her? Yes, of course he did. Uh, he had a Marxist-Leninist worldview, and so he felt that uh, Catherine, like Peter, served the interests solely of the capitalist class. So he differentiated. He said, yes, they were state servants, but they were state servants of a particular class variety. So his admiration for Peter or Catherine was always limited by his class analysis. And this we need to remember, he was not only a statist in the Russian tradition. You write of Stalin having, quote, an uncanny fusion of Marxist convictions and great power sensibilities, of sociopathic tendencies and exceptional diligence and resolve. How do you explain these, these seeming uh, contradictions in his personality? Most people are not flat characters, but they're round characters, as E.M. Forster once famously described the characters in a good novel, round as opposed to flat. Real life is complex, personalities are complex, evil is human. And Stalin was an enormous talent. That's not to say that I share his values or I share uh, any admiration for his methods, but we cannot dismiss the fact that he was a talented individual and recognized as such by all those closest to him in the inner circle. Let's remember he resigned half a dozen times in the 1920s, either orally or in writing. And every single time, the, peop- the rest of the leadership, the rest of the people in the Central Committee rose up and declined to accept his resignation. If they had perceived that he was a threat to them personally or that he was incapable of carrying that state on his back, Uh, they would have gladly accepted his resignation. And so Stalin was a figure that we should not underestimate. Trotsky spent his entire life, until Stalin had him assassinated from afar, belittling Stalin. And too much of the Trotsky viewpoint on Stalin has entered the literature and entered our consciousness that Stalin could never have been an intellectual of the class of Trotsky. He could never have written well or been smart enough to have outperformed Trotsky, and on it goes, this critique, which, of course, is false. And um, talking about his resignations, in after the German invasion, the Operation Barbarossa, he then withdrew to his dacha, didn't he, for a, a small period, and the, and the Politburo came to him again, um, asking him to take up his, uh, his position. You're exactly right. Uh, the first six days of the war were absolutely catastrophic from the Soviet point of view. Uh, Stalin was uh, desperate for information, but communication with the front was broken off because the Nazis were advancing so far so swiftly. And uh, at one evening, six, six days into the war, he was frustrated and decided to go with his cronies over to the Ministry of Defense, which is a short ride away from his office in Catherine the Great's Imperial Senate inside the Kremlin. And he drove over there, and, and it turned out he discovered that the German army was on the eastern side of Minsk, which meant Minsk had fallen, and of course, Minsk, Smolensk, Moscow, that's the road right to the Soviet capital, 
and it was the least defended road compared to the fact that the bulk of the Red Army was in the south defending Ukraine because that's what they imagined Hitler would prioritize and that's what German disinformation suggested they would prioritize. So Moscow was now vulnerable and uh, after Minsk had fallen a mere six days into the war and Stalin began to use some intemperate language and, and left and left them all there and went to the dodger by himself, which was one characteristic. Usually he took the cronies for a very late supper, as we know from the memoir literature. And then he didn't come to work the next day. And he was the whole system. So not having him at any time, let alone during the invasion, was paralyzing for the regime. And they got up the gumption to go visit him at his dacha and beg him to return to work, which they did do and which he did do. But he, there was this short period. It was a weekend, Saturday and Sunday, a short period when he was absent without leave, as they say in military terms. But instead of, at that point, blaming him for the catastrophe, not scapegoating him because that would be the wrong word, but blaming him because he was, in fact, responsible and instead of one of the others suggesting they should take over, either because they were ambitious or more capable, they felt lost, completely lost without him. You write of the problem of addressing the role of a single individual, even Stalin, in the gigantic sweep of history. Um, in the great debate over the importance of great men and women in history versus dark impersonal forces, as uh, sorry, vast impersonal forces as T.S. Eliot put it. Mm. Uh, what does Stalin's career tell us? Well, the entire international system in Stalin's day rested on the labor of peasants, of farmers, right, cultivating the land. Without that labor, and we're talking hundreds of millions of people going out into the fields every morning at dawn or slightly before, and working really all day until dusk, Without that labor, there was no international system. They produced the grain harvest that fed people and that also in the international commodity markets paid for all the military goods and other things that one could exchange uh, commodity exports for. But th their ability to engage in collective action is severely limited. They live separated from each other in villages. They have a hard time communicating from one village to the next, let alone across vast spaces. But at the apex of this international system, there are a handful of people who have enormous levers of power. And despite being a single person or a handful of people, if they're in a coalition, can leverage the system in a way that those millions and hundreds of millions of people who actually make up the system and support it and pay for it uh, could never do. And so it's not a prejudice to do something called great man history. Uh, not great in the sense of morally great, but great in the sense of enormous leverage on the system. We know this from your work on Churchill or on Napoleon, as, and one could mention many other people in this. So it's very important to understand where that leverage come from, comes from, so the structural nature of the leverage, but it's also crucial to understand the agency that they exercised in those colossal structures. You write of Stalin that he offers little help in getting to the bottom of his character and decision-making. In 1953, he was called the most famous and at the same time the most unknown person in the world. 
Was he deliberately making himself enigmatic? And how does a historian like you go about getting to the real Stalin under those circumstances? Well, the real Stalin is his life work, which is this accumulation and exercise of power over life and death over hundreds of millions of people. That's real, and that's who Stalin was. And he became Stalin in the process of acquiring that power and exercising it. He didn't become Stalin because of uh, how he was treated by his mother and father or by his teachers in school or, or by any other major events in his childhood. He became Stalin because he was in a position of absolute power for decades in a major country and in a major country that had the ambitions to be in the first rank of powers but didn't have the capabilities necessarily and resorted, as they always do in Russia, to coercion to try to manage or make up the gap with the West. That's how he became Stalin, and that's the real Stalin. But then if you're talking about what we might call his innermost thoughts, uh, did he have pangs of conscience, how did he understand uh, the fact that he was accusing all these people of participating in treason and conspiracies, which on the face of it was just improbable. And so that's the Stalin that remains enigmatic for us, right? The one where it looks like an intelligent person, quote, could not believe all of this, unquote. And yet, evidently, Stalin was persuaded of conspiracies that you and I would dismiss out of hand. And so we have to look at the world from his point of view, less from ours, but even then, we have trouble because there's so much of the propaganda, both pro and anti-Stalin, that got in the way, and, and so few of his minions survived to write about it. And of course, Stalin, unlike Hitler, never delivered those recorded table talks. In, in the first volume of your Stalin biography, Paradoxes of Power, you made the controversial but convincing case that Lenin's famous testament, or you call his so-called testament, had in fact been written by his wife uh, after his stroke. Would you like to give us some background to this and explain the significance and the consequences of it? Lenin was ill much earlier than we understand. He was ill already in 1921, a mere four years into the revolution. It looks like he had some congenital problems, uh, neurological problems. And he had his first stroke in 1922. In fact, he promoted Stalin to general secretary of the party in April of 1922. Lenin expressly created that position, general secretary of the Communist Party, for Stalin. We have that document in Lenin's hand. And the next month, Lenin had a major stroke. It was the first of a series of four major strokes. And he lost the ability to write and the ability to speak for a time. And it came back, it went away again with the next stroke. And so Lenin was more or less incapacitated over the last two years of his life, a little bit less, uh, spring 1922 through January 1924 when he passed away. And Lenin's incapacitation raised the issue of a successor for Lenin, which no one had thought about or discussed uh, prior to the, the major first stroke in the spring of 1922, because Lenin was the recognized leader 
whatever title he had, he was not general secretary of the party. Lenin was the head of the government, what we would call the prime minister in functional terms, in our terms, but, but, but obviously had a different name, a revolutionary name. But as the prime minister, he nonetheless exercised complete authority over everything, Lenin's decisions. And so once it became clear that Lenin was not coming back, and those who saw him at his dacha in Gorky, convalescing with the doctors around and his wife, uh, Krupskaya, and the secretaries understood this rather clearly because of the condition Lenin was in. The issue of successor became acute. Stalin was already general secretary of the party, so he had already succeeded Lenin. He was in the main position of power. He controlled the, the secret ciphers. He controlled the embassies abroad. He controlled the military, the secret police, and of course the Communist Party as general secretary. So Stalin had all the levers of power in his hand. Lenin didn't intend to make Stalin his successor. He intended to make Stalin his right-hand man while he continued, while Lenin continued in power. But the stroke, obviously, six weeks after creating that general secretary position, changed the game. And others began to agitate mostly against Trotsky, who was detested by everyone who knew him. Uh, and this also played into Stalin's hand. Uh, but, but all of a sudden, a document appeared, which was uh, supposedly Lenin's dictation. And this document became known as Lenin's Last Will and Testament, or his political testament. And it came in a couple of varieties including an, uh, a kind of codicil or a second piece which called for Stalin's removal as general secretary. But at the same time, the documents from the doctors indicate that Lenin couldn't really speak. Uh, he spoke in sort of gibberish, childlike sounds and grunts. And so the, the suspicion is that Krupskaya, who didn't like Stalin and didn't want Stalin to succeed Lenin, was a party to concocting or interpreting, if you prefer, Lenin's wishes at this time. We don't actually have dictation from Lenin in the hand of one of his secretaries, which we have for other documents late in life, where he would speak and the secretaries would write it down in dictation and then type it up. All we have is a typescript without the dictation, so I think the burden is on those people who believe the testament is real to demonstrate that it is real, because it doesn't look like it's the case. You say that Trotsky was detested. Was this because of um, anti-Semitism or his acid wit or his politics or any, something else? Uh, the other Jews in the regime detested Trotsky. Kamenev and Zinoviev, both of whom were also Jewish, detested Trotsky. To know Trotsky was to detest him. <laughs> <laughs> in 2017, um, in the Wall Street Journal, you wrote, though communism has killed huge numbers of people intentionally, even more of its victims have died from starvation as a result of its cruel projects of social engineering. You put the numbers of deaths from communism at 65 million people between 1917 and, and 2017. Under those murderous uh, circumstances, Stephen, why are there still people in American, British, and European universities who still propagate Marxism, Leninism, Trotskyism, Maoism, and various other offshoots of this political philosophy? 
Well, you'd have to ask them. What do you suspect? Uh, I, I think that here we would want to introduce the concept of perverse and unintended consequences, which is also a synonym for history. <laughs> uh, people believe that their intentions are pure and that the outcome is necessary for the survival of the human uh, race. For example, it's existential. And so if you just try harder, if you just exhort more, if you just do it better the next time, you'll get to that paradise on earth that you didn't get to the first time or the second time in the case of Mao. And so we have this problem where too much is put on intentions and not enough is put on how those intentions play out in the real world. Uh, green activists today did not intend to destroy the energy transition for a generation. They did that, but that was not their intention. They were the perverse and unintended consequences of their actions and goodwill. And so they'll tell you that we just need to try harder. We need to do it better the second time. Uh, we didn't try hard enough. We didn't put enough money into it. We, we had too many evil malefactors and entrenched interests who prevented us from getting our way. So there's this eternal appeal to let's get another try, let's do it better the next time, rather than let's examine the perverse and unintended consequences, the road to hell is paved with the best intentions. I think that explains a lot of it. We have injustices. There were injustices in Tsarist Russia. That's why Stalin joined the underground. He spent his entire adult life through the age of 39, without a profession, without a legal job, in exile, in prison, escaping from exile and prison, being harassed and, and worse by the Tsarist secret police because there were injustices in Tsarist Russia and they were real and he dedicated his life to overcoming those injustices. The problem, of course, is that the system he presided over was worse and the injustices, instead of being transcended, were deepened and made more pervasive. And so Stalin is the ultimate example of perverse and unintended consequences. He didn't sacrifice those 39 years without profession, without an income in poverty, living in Siberian exile, because one day later in life he thought, you know, if I do all this, I'll be able to murder 18 to 20 million people. It was on behalf of these ideals, as we were discussing earlier, but the perverse and unattended consequences could not have been more profound. And, and when, um, sometime in the mid-1990s, Michael Ignatiev asked Eric Hobsbawm whether the death of those tens of millions of people was justifiable uh, in order to try to create a new society, uh, Hobsbawm immediately said yes. Um, the, doesn't the, <laughs> the very fact that uh, trying to get to that new society lead to so many deaths in and of itself, obviate the, any good that that society might uh, finally have. You cannot get to freedom, abundance, and peace. You cannot get to happiness through murder. There's just no way that those kinds of methods can get you to those kinds of aims or those goals and intentions. And so, yes, the handwriting is on the wall. In fact, Mao... Mao Zedong 
saw everything that happened in the Soviet Union, the famines, the mass deaths, the whole story. And he did it again. And he did it again on purpose. He didn't say, oh, I'll do it better my time because I'll be more careful, I'll be smarter. He did it knowing that it would require mass murder, potentially mass starvation. Many of the Marxist-Leninists today are not like Mao in the sense of willing to kill people, but they don't understand the connection between the destruction of people's liberty, of private property, of markets, and the full statization and the kind of tyranny that results from that. Uh, because they either in, in denial of the history that we're talking about, or as I said, they believe that they'll do it better the next time and that their intentions are pure. Which brings us on, of course, to the modern totalitarians, to, um, to Vladimir Putin and uh, President Xi. Uh, in Putin, we see a leader who uses history a good deal to justify his actions, of course, uh, especially with the invasion of Ukraine. Um, how good a historian is he? Uh, he's right that there are tendentious interpretations which inflict, you would say, inflict upon Russian interests some distortions. So there's some truth to his critique about the 1930s leading to World War II, about the role of Poland in some of the 1930s machinations. There is a small kernel of truth in some of what Putin is saying. But of course, the larger story is his own distortions and manipulations on behalf of uh, the criminal war that he unleashed against Ukraine beginning in 2014 and then expanded in February 2022. So, however, he's taught us a lesson here, which is to say that we need to know and use our history well because others will use it if we don't. And if we don't know the history that he's manipulating, we won't understand that he is manipulating that history. Xi Jinping has learned that lesson as well, but in the Putin sense of the term rather than in the sense that I'm describing we, you and I, our listeners, need to understand. Xi Jinping uh, certainly is uh, manipulating history like Putin in the sense that Deng Xiaoping is almost, not quite, but almost being erased uh, from Chinese history Dong was the culmination of Chinese history and certainly Communist Party history until recently. And now Dong is being reduced, if not forgotten. Mao remains elevated because without Mao, you wouldn't have that system. So you can't eliminate Mao and keep the system very easily the way you can try to de-Stalinize but keep Lenin in the Soviet case. And Xi's elevation of himself on a level with Mao uh, right before our eyes, uh, sh should, let's put it this way, we should understand the connection between those manipulations of history and his alteration of the status quo in East Asia and beyond right now as you and I speak with the aggressions against Taiwan, right, that, 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 are, that are unfolding and, and could get worse over the next several days. 
There's a question that I ask uh, all, or for two questions that I ask all of my interviewees. What uh, history book or, or biography are you reading at the moment? I read a lot of books on China. I spend at least half of my time reading books on China and have done so for the past uh, two decades. My current favorite that I read not long ago is Eric Schwartzel's book on Hollywood in China, which is just an unbelievably well-reported, exacting story about how Hollywood is doing China's bidding in the propaganda war against the West. During the Cold War, we supported a number of cultural organizations, some clandestinely, to get the West's message out against their propaganda. What we see now is big money supporting Chinese propaganda in Hollywood. Richard Gere hasn't had a part in a major Hollywood movie since 2012, which happens to be the time when he began to support Tibet and Tibet's cause politically against the Chinese regime. Eric Schwartzel's book, he's a Wall Street Journal reporter, is a great read in addition to a great history lesson. It's a terrifying story of appeasement, essentially, isn't it, what Hollywood's been doing? And worse. Yes, and you're right. And what's your favorite historical what-if, your counterfactual? Well, that's a very hard one to answer, Andrew, because I have so many. Uh, you know, had, uh, had, had Lenin, had the would-be assassin of Lenin in 1918 had better aim and killed him, etc. But let's settle on the Hong Kong one of 1945, which I think is underappreciated. Um, in 1945, as you know, the United States quickly issued a proclamation about which areas under Japanese control would surrender to whom. Uh, the Japanese surrender took the Americans by surprise, even though the Americans had dropped the two atomic bombs and had been hoping the Japanese would surrender. And they were very hurried in this proclamation. And they declared that Hong Kong under Japanese control, that the Japanese would surrender there to Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist government of China. But the British would have none of that, and they insisted that they would return to Hong Kong. And, and the Americans were forced eventually to accept this. They tried to compromise. The British rejected even the compromise and took Hong Kong back themselves. And as a result, Hong Kong became, under British rule, a major international financial center with the rule of law that was largely responsible for the Chinese communist economic miracle. Had the Chinese communist regime inherited Hong Kong from Chiang Kai-shek in 1949 when Mao took over the whole country, there would have been no British Hong Kong, no international financial center with the rule of law, no gigantic mechanism to direct foreign direct investment into mainland China on market principles rather than communist principles, and we would not be facing the China that we're facing today. So that's a pivotal moment. You're Hong blaming Kong it on the British. Um, I, uh, of course, it was it was British from 1898 to 1941. So we, we had had it. I think it's perfectly understandable that Churchill would have wanted it back after 43 years of uninterrupted British I'm control. not blaming anyone, Andrew. <laughs> I'm only suggesting... It sounds a bit like you are, Stephen. I'm only suggesting that that's as big a what-if today as I can find among the many that I'd like to talk about. And of course, Britain by treaty turned Hong Kong over to the communists. 
1997. Well, we had a 199-year lease on it. We didn't have much say, unfortunately. And, and the result has been that the communist regime in Beijing has been willing to damage and potentially destroy this international financial center with the rule of law for purely political purposes and damage this great asset that they were handed on a silver platter by the British, unfortunately. And so I think that is a big what if, Andrew. But but I'll leave who's to blame to you and, and, and your subsequent guests. You are kind. Uh, Stephen Kotkin, thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you for the opportunity to be here. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.